Good morning, everybody. Uh, happy Memorial Day. Uh, our prayers go out to all of those who have lost loved ones in the service of our great nation. And uh, freedom is always under attack by the kingdom of darkness. I just read this morning a report from a missionary, a man who's actually attended here once or twice, uh, who uh, Mark Musser, uh, who pastored a church up in Washington for a while. And uh, he's in uh, Belarus right now and has a ministry in Ukraine as well. So he's actually there in the midst of that ongoing war. And in his newsletter this morning, he talked about how uh, both right and left, west and east, are just all after money and power, and he can see it. And, you know, the, the people who lose out is the middle guy, the, the middle guy and gal who are especially Christians. Um, and so the, it, it just shows not only here but everywhere, the kingdom of darkness is always trying to take away our freedom. So I thank you. I thank some gentlemen here who I've served. Uh, I thank you for your service to the armed forces. I thank you that you obeyed the call and laid aside your personal life and your your own schedule to serve us and to protect us. And for those who have made the ultimate sacrifice in losing their lives in the service of their nation, uh, we pray for your families and thank you. Uh, for giving us your sons and daughters so that we could hold on to our freedoms. Uh, I want to also say welcome to Suzanne, who is able to attend. It's so good to see you. And uh, please remember to keep Roger in prayer, her husband Roger. He's still in the hospital and um, help uh, to help him uh, gain comfort. And also for Suzanne, who's he wants her by his side all the time and uh you know, living at the hospital, if you've ever had to do it, is not the funnest of things. <clears throat> let's uh, open up in prayer and let's uh, together thank God for what he has provided for us. I mean, talk about freedom. Uh, no matter what happens, our destiny through Jesus Christ our Lord is in heaven for all of eternity. Um, he has not asked us to work for this, but he has done all the work and has given it to all who have believed upon him uh, without merit to us at all. Because the love of God, as we'll see this morning, is more than we can possibly comprehend. Uh, and so uh, in humility and reverence, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, our great God, thank you for giving us yourself. You gave your only Son because you love the world. And we who have believed upon him, we know that we are the recipients of a grace that is unfathomable. You have done everything for us. Yet there's so much that we still don't comprehend or understand but we know that you have it all under control. We cannot control things, but you do. And you have controlled history. You have controlled each of our lives. And we will know this for certain when we are in eternity. We pray, Father, through your Spirit and your Word that we would believe it now. 
and that we would rest in You and have peace to accept Your boundless love, even though we don't deserve it one iota. We pray, Father, for the families of those who have who have served in the armed forces and lost their lives uh, or who have just gone home to be with you and who have served in the past and our hearts go out to them. We thank you for their dedication and their honor to our Constitution, to our freedom. And uh, we also lift up Roger. We ask, Father, that you be with him and comfort him and help him, Father, to recover come back and sit with us as we worship you would be wonderful. We thank you, Father, for all things. And may our day today be filled with thanksgiving and reverence towards you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please.
Uh, Joni, uh, that many of you know, uh, in Houston, sent me an article with attached pictures about uh, AI and the ability of AI, artificial intelligence, to create art. Uh, and so uh, here's a picture of an AI art piece that actually won an art contest. They didn't give the prize money to a computer. Uh, this man won a digital art category in an art contest. It's actually quite a nice work. Uh, but basically what you do is you type in some parameters into this program, and then the AI spits out a picture for you. So I went online and tried this myself. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, scary at first because I'm like, you know, this, this is like Terminator on the other side of the computer is going to draw me a picture. And, you know, so uh, there's a bunch of free websites. You can try it yourself. You just type in some, I, I couldn't. I mean, I, it was hard for me to think of things to type in, but it spits out pictures for you, and, and pretty incredible. Uh, however, there's a reason why I'm using this. Is as Joni and I were going back and forth talking about this, we you know we realized because the computer program can actually make things like this is an original piece, right? No one's ever thought of this before, and which is freaky, and. Say, for instance, that AI can create art that's better than what humans can produce. What the heck? Let's hang them up in our house. I mean, if you're into art, I guess. But the thing that we were kind of going back and forth on was who's behind the painting. And that makes a difference if you really appreciate artwork, which I do. Um, and I, Chris and I, this uh, was it last last year when we did Joey's wedding. We we got to go to the Smithsonian Art Museum. Uh, we didn't go to the modern art one across the street. I'm like, what is that? But uh, the we went to the the real one, and my God, amazing, amazing. But the thing that strikes you, like the, my favorite painting in this in the whole museum, of which I saw Van Gogh's, I saw Monet's, Manet's, and all of them, that mayonnaise, whatever his name is. And for the first time, I've never seen anything priceless like that. But there's this one picture by Da Vinci, who was sitting there, just you just couldn't believe that a man could produce such a thing. And, but here's the thing about it is like you can see the man almost behind the painting, the amount of time and patience and effort and struggle and all the learning and the love that goes into it. And a computer program can't give you that. No matter how good the image or painting may be, for us, there's something missing. And I meant to put up here the latest picture that Maggie drew of herself, self-portrait by Maggie, <laughs> holding a flower. I sent it to Joni. And, you know, it's, you know, why is that special? Because of who did it. We know that a machine made this. With a machine, there's no heartache, there's no struggle, there's no passion or love behind the brush. I mean, you could get the program to actually use a printer to make the painting, right? There's no disturbed Van Gogh behind it who's ready to cut his ear off. 
And I thought of this as a good opening for today's lesson because what we're looking at today is God's love. I'm going to start to look at God's love. It's a big subject. It's a great subject. And God creates. You see, behind your salvation is love. Behind heaven for you and me is love. What if God just say would take two scenarios? Let's say you get you get to take your choice. God ignores your sin, just ignores it, sweeps it under the rug, so to speak, and he plucks you out of this world and puts you in eternity in heaven and he puts you there and it's beautiful and there's always something fun to do and you always have because I have to caveat this, right? You have to always have the energy to do the fun thing. <laughs> Everybody over 50 here is going, yeah, thank you. We were just, uh, someone in our family is over, and Chris's family, it's, well, I guess it's my family too. But <laughs> I married into it, you know. And, uh, they're in Hawaii going from place to place to place to place, and we're like, man, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> when we went to Hawaii, we just we either went to the beach or stayed in the hotel. You know, it was it was relaxing. So anyway, what if God just took you and put you in eternity? And really, that's quite mechanical, isn't it? It's actually chemical and mechanical. Give you a new body, which is new chemistry, and put you in a new place, which is a new environment, and say, look, here's all the toys and things, the food, whatever you want, the sex, everything. Just have at it. There'll be no repercussions. You'll always have the energy to do whatever you want to do. And how long would it take for us to be bored, I wonder? But the problem with that, well, I won't get to the problem yet. So this is option one. And behind option one, God just forgot your sin, plucked you out, put you in another world. No struggle, no need for God to become a man. No cross, no death, no resurrection, not necessary. Or, and I don't have to describe it to you because you know it, the way it did happen. Would you prefer that? God so loved the world that he gave his begotten only son. His only begotten son. You see, the way that it actually happened has love behind it. A love that you and I can't comprehend. It is, right, what my title for today is, God makes no sense. He don't. That's not good English. <laughs> God don't make no sense. He, does, he doesn't make any sense at all. And we're going to look at a parable, one parable in particular in which Jesus actually, his purpose is to make no sense. I mean, in a, in a rational world. The way that God has done it has love behind it. And the first way is simply mechanical, what I described before. And what we find in the scripture is um, that God had no other choice but to do it the way that he did. And we have to be careful about that because when we say something's not an option for God, we can't imagine that there's something above God. Like, in other words, love is God. But that's not what the scripture says, does it? Does it say love is God? It says God is love. That's important. Because God is not only love, he's many things. 
Christians get themselves caught up in in problems when they think God is only love and not justice, righteousness, holiness. The Corinthians were like, dude, God is love. Let's go to the temple and do what we do. No. Because God is also righteous, holy, just. But we can't take it all in at the same time. He's too big. So, we take one piece at a time. Knowing, caveat, that God's not forced to do something because love is above Him. It isn't love is God and then God is under love and He's forced to obey it. Somehow, and we can't comprehend, and it's right that we can't comprehend because our minds are too finite, that God chooses to love the way that He does and God is love the way that He is. The first way of just ignoring sin and sweeping it under the rug would violate His justice, and God won't do that. Sin had to be dealt with. And God dealt with it the way that it had to be dealt with. Either cast us all into hell, or become a man and become our mediator. And it's astounding what he did. God is not bound by his nature. And it's hard to think otherwise, but in my gut I know that it, it is true. God is not bound by his nature. God makes choices. But also, what we are not, God is, when he introduces himself further in Revelation to Moses at the burning bush. You know, we're, we're not far into the revelation of God as we're at the beginning of Exodus. In Exodus 3, he says, I am that what I am. And that means that God is perfect existence. He is original. He has no beginning. And while you're trying to wrap your finite mind around that idea, just know that God chooses to love us and does love us because he is love. Both are true. And because God loves us, he gave us his son, that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. Now, this study is going to go next week, might go too. Uh, the love of God deserves a bit of our thinking and, uh, you know, this, there's going to be a lot to it. Um, so we need to, the reason here, and you can turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians 1. We'll see the reason we're, at least see the reason we're here. So all last week we looked at, in our three, so four classes, or really three classes, we looked at faith. And what faith was and how it increases. Uh, and, you know, faith is believing. Believing, and for our case, believing that which is impossible. But we believe it. We believe what we haven't seen. Faith is the assurance of things not seen. The hope of things to come. That's what faith is. Faith is confidence that in the future God is going to deliver. Faith is that everything that God says is true is ironclad true. It is very real. And that this world, actually, is not permanent. And so faith... So look at uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.3. We're, 
We already studied 1 Thessalonians. We've moved into the second letter. We ought always to give thanks to you. I'm sorry, not to you. That's important. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So despite the many persecutions that they face, their faith is continuing to increase, meaning they're believing more and more about the message that they've heard, the truth of God, the truth of God's word, and their love for one another Each one of you for one another grows even greater. The Greek word there means actually to superabound. And so what is this love that we need to make sure we understand? Um, The reason why we need to understand this is because for a while now, we have been on a journey of, in God's Word, of discovering what it means to live holy. To not quench the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, We went through the book of James, to be those who have faith, not without works, but faith with works. Uh, We have been on a journey of holiness. And it's vital that we live holy. And yet, we can find ourselves struggling with that. I mean, I don't need to ask for amens on that. We all struggle with it. Uh, And what can happen is that this life of holiness can feel like we're walking to school barefoot in the snow uphill both ways. But there's a reason why. And so, when is there some ticket in, in our doctrinal journey that's going to make that easier? I'd say, yeah, yeah, easier, but also at the same time, not easier. The journey isn't going to get easier. You're going to get stronger. The journey isn't going to get easier. You're going to believe more. Now, you're going to put muscle on your faith. And the key here... There's several, but I mean, really, that we could put it all under the love of God, because we're gonna. The reason why we're climbing to school uphill both ways, two feet in the snow, is because of Jesus Christ. And it's not me trying to earn something with God. That's more of the AI thing, right? That's more mechanical. That's more. Actually, and it's a word that we're going to see quite a bit in our study, legal. I'm going to follow certain rules, and I'm going to get things from God. Now, here's the thing, though. People say, well, grace means I don't follow the rules. No, that's not true. We're not to be lawless. That was a Corinthian mistake. Right? Everything's all grace, right? So we can go to the Temple of Aphrodite, sleep with the, sorry, not the prostitutes, they're priestesses. We can sleep with them and get drunk and all, and whatever drugs they were using. There are all kinds of stuff going on in the worship 
of Aphrodite there. And it's all grace, right? Grace covers every sin, absolutely. But that life is not what we're called to, and it's not that it becomes actually an option for us. And so in our study, we have to find out this love of God for us which is completely unmerited and we don't deserve it and we're at our lowest of the low that we are, this love that we receive from God, how does that now become my love for Him? And that's not as easy as it sounds. It has to be understood from the Scripture because there's a confusing thing there. When Paul wraps up Romans 5, he says, where sin increased, when the law was brought in, sin increased. Of course, you gave man more rules to follow and we broke them all. So where, where, uh, where the law came, sin increased, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Perfect. So I can just go on sinning. And then Paul says, wait, <laughs> shall we continue in sin? so that grace may increase. And he said, absolutely not. And then Paul leads us into something about what we've been given. So we say to ourselves, all right, and a lot of people do this, so it was grace when I was a stupid, out of God's will, sinner, unbeliever, or whatever label you want to give yourself. It was grace then, but now it's works. And that's not it either. So, what is it? Stay tuned. That'll be either Tuesday or Wednesday. So, love means action. God so loved the world that he gave. When we love one another, as we'll see in our study, we are to do for one another. But it's this love for one another, us doing. You know, I could just say, you know, I, I should do stuff for that person. Okay, what should I do? Maybe I'll write out a list and I'll tick them off as I go without trying to tick them off, you know. Uh, and anyway, uh, it's not mechanical, right? God doesn't tell us exactly what to say to one another, exactly what to do to one another. He tells us to love one another and serve one another in our spiritual gifts. He tells us to build up one another in love. He tells us to encourage, to comfort, to pray for uh, to consider how to stimulate others to love and good deeds. He tell us, tells us to do all these things, but he doesn't tell us exactly what to do. Why is that? Because it's not a computer program. God's love is completely irrational. And we have to be. Now, we can say, you know, don't take that in the wrong way. That we should all be irrational, all right? But there's an aspect of what uh, pretty much all Christianity has done all throughout Christian history is say, yeah, God, I see what you're doing, but that's not practical. And what we do is we bring legality into what God tells us to do and what he does for us, and then we, we limit it. And as much as we limit the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God to one another, we're limiting our own understanding of God. So, you're limiting yourself, and that is your reward. 
You know, you, you have your reward in full. I was willing to go so far with you, God, but not any farther. And God would say, well, that's what you got. You, you got to know or see some of me. And by the way, I'm right here. This is not a works thing where we say, well, if I do more, I see God more. God is like, no, I am here. I'm in you. I'm on you. I'm with you. I'm all around you. You're just closing your eyes to me. And you see, when you get this by faith, you're going to see what has been there all along. Me. I've always been with you. Always been there. Yeah, after the resurrection of Christ, did the disciples have more of Christ? They spent three years with him. Three and a half. Did they understand him? Not really. But it wasn't like they didn't have him. But after his resurrection, after he taught them from the Old Testament how things were supposed to go down, and then they're all like, oh. Right? That's that, the old commercial of the V8 moment. Could have had a V8. Then they get it. But did they get more of Christ? No, their eyes were open. And there's a lot of this in the Scripture, which we'll see at some point in our study as well, that there's a reason why Christ healed so many blind people, especially the man born blind. This is the last line to the parable. We'll read it when we close. This is the last line to the parable of the vineyard owner and the laborers. Uh, this is the parable, if you know it, where the, the vineyard owner goes out and hires some guys for a denarius, a day's wage, to work all day. And then he hires another group and another group and another group. And each group works a little less. And the last group works one hour. The first group would have worked 14 hours in the hot sun. The last group worked one hour. God gave them, or the vineyard owner, gave them all the same amount of money. And, you know, the guys who worked all day were like, wait a minute. Look, when you read this parable, if you're not angry, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> all of us should be a bit angry at this. Do you mean I give, serve you, Lord, for 14 hours? And this idiot over here just woke up past noon. I'm just trying to put it in our modern terms. Who went to work for an hour and then punched out and he gets paid the same as I do? Is that right? And it's not. It's not right. And Jesus didn't mean it to be right. And we'll see the parables. Every parable is about God. Right? In, in this parable, is Jesus teaching about management and labor and wealth, the welfare system? No. It's about God. And it's about one idea about God. And if you can remember that, you won't misinterpret parables. You're looking for God's one theme in that parable. And in this parable, the one theme is God's agape love is irrational to all rational computations. We calculate. We calculate this person deserves a little more. This person deserves a little less. And in the legal, rationalistic world, it's true. Think about it. In the Old Testament, if you tried your best to maintain the law, were you better off and more blessed by God if you were someone who rejected the law completely? Of course you were. 
We, we, we see it. You're told, obey the law. And if you obey the law, you're called righteous. Bring the proper sacrifices at the proper time. You're called righteous. And what does God say? Here are the blessings and the curses. To the blessing go these who are keeping the law. To those who say, no, I don't want to keep the law, the curses come. You're, better, you're far better off keeping the law. You would be called righteous. So we say, well, then that doesn't make any sense. What are we doing here? Are we supposed to be righteous? Or, I get it, we're supposed to live like hell and just let God rain down blessing on us because we're in the age of grace. Right? And then we keep reading, as we have to do. Because when you come up with your own idea about how things are supposed to work, just know that you probably don't know everything. And keep studying, keep reading, keep reading. And then we find out, wait a minute. No, it's not a lascivious life. I'm called to be righteous. Actually, Jesus called us to be more righteous than the Pharisees. And what he meant by that was, we are law keepers even more stringent than they are. And I love it. Oh, you know, if in our rational minds God made sense, that's not God. That is not God. Not in our rational mind. Hence, we live by, not by sight, but by faith. Uh, so, in our passage here, your love increases. Excuse me, I've got a thing going on here. Go away. Thank you. Windows wants to update. I say no. All right, here we go. Love is agape. I don't have to prove to you this morning, I'm sure, and I can't because I don't have time to. But this is God's love, agape love. Uh, it's used, this noun, agape, is used 116 times in the New Testament. The verb agapao is used 143 times. So at 250 times, a little over, God is speaking of love. And in the Upper Room Discourse, which is given to us only by the Apostle John, in John 13 through 16, uh, Jesus uses it 18 times. Jesus speaks of the verb love 18 times. So let's go there. Let's go to John 13, 34. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that the love that Jesus is speaking about, another place, and we'll see this this week, is Jesus is talking about love in the Sermon on the Mount. That's a major one, where we do see love your enemies. Uh, and so all of this is going to teach us what God's love is and how that looks in our lives. Because we're not God, so you know we don't originate this love. So we're going to respond to it. We have to see how that works in us. Because there's another kind of love that has always been human love, 
that has always been in the Greek word world. They use the word eros for this. And a lot of people think eros only means erotica. It does not mean that. Eros, love, as written about by Plato and Aristotle and all the philosophers, was a love of things that took you to heaven. And it's humanistic. And that world is what the Bible came into. The New, the New Testament. The New Testament teaching, Christianity, invaded a world that was overrun by Eros. And Eros has forever since then been competing with Agape to call itself Christian love. And it's done a fine job at doing it. It's been very successful. Eros is like a big wide river. Right? Eros is like the Willamette River in the middle of spring over here. When I first came to Oregon, I was always calling it the Willamette River until the, yeah, until the people who lived here were like, they just, they were very patient with me and I appreciate that. Uh, and many, for many, many things, not just mispronunciations, but, you know, that's, Eros is like that. The mighty Willamette or Columbia just barreling away and if you jumped into it, well, see you later. We're probably never going to see you again. But, Agape is a narrow stream, and it is the purest of the pure. And what has happened is, Eros has pulled Agape into itself, and Agape gets lost in the big river. And we have to discern them. Right? We, ha- we have to live with both, but one is one we worship, the other is one that we deal with. Um, <clears throat> so when Jesus writes about or speaks about love, it's the same love that Paul would write about in the epistles. And we shouldn't be surprised about that. Not, what this means is we need both the Gospels and the epistles to understand this. Right? We can't, there's plenty of Christians who say, yeah, the Gospels are just history. We don't really need this. All we need is Paul. I know Several people have believed that, and that's not the case. All Scripture is God-breathed. We need those Gospels. We need the teaching of the Lord, and Paul is going to expound upon it for sure, but we need both. So look at uh, John thirteen thirty four. <clears throat> A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Doesn't that sound repetitive to you? Isn't that great, though? He's, yeah. You know what a lot of people have tried to do over the, oh, so much, is to make Jesus a theologian. He ain't no theologian. Theologians talk about what they think God is. This is God talking about himself. That's not a theologian. That's a theos. (laughs) He's God. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He's repetitive on purpose. By this all men will know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, and that, the, in, in, the, in the Greek here, one another is one word, ale, uh-oh, I'm starting to forget my Greek now. Uh, alelos, I think it is, yeah, alelos, it's A-double-L-E-L, it like stands out, it jumps off the page wherever you see that double L, and it's here three times in a row, um, love one another. 
Why is this a new command? I mean, you're told to love your neighbor as yourself in the Old Testament. You're told to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Absolutely. Um, Why is this different? That we need to explore. The love that Christ showed the world is different than the Old Testament command. And when we say different, we don't mean of a completely different species It's more like the Old Testament sacrifices were a shadow of what was to come and Christ was the reality. What we have in the Old Testament love is a a divine love, but it's more of a shadow of what was to really come. And what was to really come was Jesus, the God-man. And he comes into the world, and he comes into the world of Judaism that is run by the law. And he's under the law. He's put himself under the law. He's the creator of the law, which is precious. And yet all the Jews are. And so, you know, the Jews are to live under the law, correct. And now, if you're under the law and you're righteous, you're doing your best to follow the law and you're righteous, are you to partner up with, dine with, hang out with, buddy up with, those who are unrighteous. And I'm talking about people who are not following the law. Are you to be with them, arm in arm? Well, you know, we're reading our Old Testament, and it says that God curses them and He blesses us. I don't know. Should I be with them? And yet, here comes Jesus, and that's exactly what He does. He not only hangs out with, I say hang out is not the word. He is with them in their presence, but he sits down to eat with them. These are people who are not going to the synagogue. They're not going to the temple. They're not offering the sacrifices. They're Jews. And they live, you know, we don't know exactly what they're doing, but it's most likely, like the woman who runs into the Pharisee's house and washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. She's a harlot. She's a Jewish girl who's not following the law of Moses very well. And yet, what does Jesus say to her? Now, the Pharisee, his name's Simon, says, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would not let her touch him. And that is Torah. So, You know, what is Jesus doing? Well, uh, I wish I could answer that for you so perfectly, but I'm not there yet. That doesn't stop me from teaching it. (laughs) You may say, wait a minute, Pastor, you can't teach any of this unless you know it 100%. Well, then I wouldn't be able to teach you anything. Um, My job is not to have you think that I know everything, because I don't, I'm not even close. My job is to get up here and to be the voice behind the scriptures and let God speak to you and to me so that all of us together explore who he is, because that's what it's all about. I mean, the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we could know the things of Christ. That's what Christ said. 
He's going to disclose to you the things that are mine, and the things that are mine are the things of the Father's. And you're going to find that out. And what a journey it is. I started this study on agape uh, probably about a week ago, and I'm like, it's like I never learned it. And, it, you know, your first reaction, which I think is the legal one, is like, what an idiot I am. What am I doing? And then the second reaction is, how wonderful is this? It's so wonderful. So as I, I was relating this, to this, the analogy to me is like the Christian life is a journey, and you're on this journey. And sometimes you're looking around, just say, you know, I don't know, you're like Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, like uh, you're on your way to Mordor or wherever you're going. And sometimes it's the woods, and sometimes it's a valley, and sometimes it's a steep climb, and sometimes it's a piece of cake, nice, flat, beautiful valley or flat land that you're walking on, and sometimes it's just the biggest struggle. Sometimes it's downhill, sometimes it's uphill. But sometimes you start to say, well, you know what? I think I know what this is. You know, you've been walking the path for a while now. And you think, you know, the surroundings are looking familiar. You're getting used to it. And then you come around some corner. And God says, hey. And you're like, what in the heck is that? And God has shown you something new. And our pride in us will say, well, uh, (laughs) I should have seen that coming. Come on now. Enjoy the journey. The love of Christ that he came into the world to show is absolutely irrational. Irrational. It's senseless. It doesn't make any sense because it's not based on legality. Ooh. So, and, and some have said, well, you know, there's something about the sinners. This is the romantic idea that there's something about the sinners that Jesus saw. And that's why he wanted to be with them. Those tax collectors and prostitutes and people who were not following the law. You know, there's a romantic idea that they're the lowest of the low in society. And so there's something in them, you know, this whatever it is. I can tell you honestly, Jesus saw absolutely nothing in them that warranted his love. Nothing. And nothing in us either. So did he only love the sinners and not love the righteous? No, he loved them too. But when he comes into a world that elevates the righteous and puts down the sinner, he goes right to the sinners to tell them, look, something new's here. Something new has come. If he just went to the synagogues and he just went to the religious and he ministered to them, everybody would have said, well, that's what we expected from the Messiah, that he's coming to the best of the best. When Jesus says, no, I'm going to the worst, and you know why I'm going to the worst? is because I love all of you. And I'm showing that by going to the worst. That doesn't mean that it's best to be worst. But that's how, right? Satan's slick. That's how it's been interpreted in the church. That as a believer, if I live an immoral, reckless, lawless life, I am the recipient of God's grace. I'm like his little precious project. And you're certainly his project. I, I, I know that because that, I, I adopted that. Because <laughs> I wanted to. 
I wanted to. Oh, God's so patient. And he shakes his head at you, and he's like, you idiot. Boy, you've got a lot to learn. But I love you just like I love the person who gets it. I love you like I love everybody else. And you need to get it. So that we'll see in our study that once you get it, there's a reason why things are now required of you that were not required before. And believe me, it's not going back to the law. It's not. It's more like being welcomed into the family. So what Christ did was life has become a house. This is life now. Go to John 14. We're looking at upper room. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. And Judas, as John points out, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus said to them, said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's what's happened. What's happened is, is that we are given, those who see God's love, we're given the ability to love him back. An unbeliever can't do that. The believer has seen, by faith in the gospel, has seen. It's a mustard seed for sure. But he has seen the love of God. And by seeing the love of God, that believer can respond now. And when we respond, that's all we're doing here is responding. Jesus said to his disciples, as you have been given much, uh, sorry, as you have received much, so give. If I haven't received it, I can't give it. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word in verse 23, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Not in him, by the way, with him. The preposition is clear here, that it's with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Life has become a house built by the Son out of his love for you. That's what life is now for us. It's got blueprints. Um, For a lot of us, it's, I'd say for all of us, it's a work in progress. That's why I picked studs and not a completed mansion. Now we're on our way. And as and this becomes an experience, the experience of God's love and I start to let go of all of my what? You can fill in the blank for yourself there. You know what you need to let go of. You know what you have let go of. It needs to go. And it, it and what is it that has allowed me to let it go? It's the love of God. No, and so again, but you know, it, it's not. His God is love, but He's more. But it's truly His love that I can count upon. I say, well, you know, can I trust my life to Him? Can I entrust this situation to Him? Do I, do I know that I I need not worry or be afraid? 
I trust Him for everything. And why can I do that? His love is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The merit of faith is, you know what, I'm going to skip that. That's going to come later. I'm just looking at my time, and it has to come later. All right, go to Matthew chapter 9. Two passages, and we're home free. (laughs) There's a lot lot to do here, which is great. Um, So fill in the blank. This is your uh, quiz for today. Uh, Christ came into the world to call who? You can think of that for yourself because I, I, every time I do this, when someone shouts out a wrong answer, I feel feel bad. You know, they're like, "No, no." How about you? No. Come on. Don't you know anything? No, I don't want to do that. So Christ came into the world to call. But there's a reason why this kind of teaching is effective because if you're just sitting here letting someone fill in your thoughts for you, which is the the guy giving the monologue and you're not challenging yourself, and when you challenge yourself, even though you're wrong, when you're wrong, and I am a lot, you're learning. Right? That struggle to make that neuron work is of exercise to your brain. Christ came into the world to call who? And he called the, come on now, there they are, the sinners. Look at Matthew 9, 9 through 13. And Jesus went on from there, and he called, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. I think that's how it really went down. Oh, okay. Where are we going? Uh, the, The show The Chosen has done a marvelous job with the character Matthew. All made up, of course. I know some people still get mad at that, that they've, taken liberties, like, what else are they going to do? And they have to fill in the story. Um, But this is all that's needed here. But why is it important that it's right here? It's because Matthew is a tax collector. Who has invited him? Matthew didn't go running to the Lord saying, oh, please, please, please let me follow you. No, he calls him. And tax collectors are traitors. They're traitors to the Jews. They're taking the money of their brethren to give it to the Romans whom they hate. They're not even allowed to go to the synagogue. They're not allowed to even... That's one of the reasons we think they hung out with prostitutes so much because no one would let them marry their daughters. These guys were outcasts. They got rich on it. Which is, you know, it's questionable character. We can't imagine that Matthew is the one tax collector who has a kind heart. I mean, that's great if he is, but you don't read that here, so don't put it in. This guy is a sinner. All right, that verse 10, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. I scoured the, I say scoured, I did a brief uh, look at, uh, (laughs) it just sounds so much better when you say scoured. Uh, I looked through the Gospels quickly to find a place where the disciples would say to Jesus, let's not eat with these people. And I I couldn't really find it. 
There's a place, you know, when, G- when Jesus heals the man born blind, the disciples say, what sin did this man commit or did his parents commit that he was born blind? You know, and, and that kind of, because they're brought up in this same environment, they've got to be really uncomfortable. But Jesus isn't. Because Jesus knows something that they don't. Jesus has brought the love of God to the world in its purest reality. So when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teaching eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. And he quotes the prophet Hosea. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you notice here that Jesus absolutely acknowledges that they're sinners? He doesn't say, hey, 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 you know, don't call them that. Don't call them that. You know, in our day and age with all the political correctness and wokeness, it would be like, hey, you're labeling here, you know. Don't use that kind of microaggression against these people. People are what they are. These people are sinners. Jesus knows it. And he's elbow to elbow with them. Talking with them. Spending time with them. And why is that? Well, this quote from Hosea actually brings it out. And this is Old Testament, right? It's stated by Samuel to Saul in 1 Samuel, roughly the same. But this quote is from Hosea. And the prophet Hosea says this, look... You can offer all the sacrifices you want, Israel, but if you're not merciful and compassionate to your fellow man, then you don't understand what I am as Yavah Elohim. You don't know who I am. Can you measure compassion? You can't, right? You can measure a sacrifice. A sacrifice is a material, measurable ritual. But when it comes to having grace and mercy and love in your heart, can't be measured. It may look like you have love, but you may be faking it. If you have true mercy in your heart, the only one who knows it is you and God. And so even in the Old Testament, they should have known this, that there was something more important than sacrifice. There was something more important than the law, than the legality of things, that there was something more But could they really put their finger on it like we can? No, because they didn't have the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do. Paul says this. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. So we would be wrong to think that God chose Paul because he was the foremost of sinners. That is not the case. That would mean that there was something about Paul that was warranted or worthy of God calling him to be the preeminent apostle and write half the New Testament. But not at all. Not at all. Please notice what he says. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. All of them. And that is the love of God. Why was Paul chosen? Well, we can make guesses, but... One of them, most likely, just like I said, when Jesus went to the sinners, he was saying to the world, I'm here for all of you. And when Jesus chooses this man, 
a killer of Christians, a murderer, as Paul says, a foremost sinner, when he chooses him as his preeminent missionary, God is saying to the world, I call all of you. And I do mean believers, but in my estimation, I think many of yours that Christ died for the sins of the entire world were unlimited atonement people and that he has provided salvation for the world. That is the love of God. All right. So go to Matthew 20. This is the most offensive of parables. Uh, Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into the vineyard, and he went out at the third hour, uh, that's like 9 o'clock, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And those, to those he said, You also go out in the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. And again he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And then at the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, Go into the vineyard too. Now, I remind you, parables are about God and one idea about God. So they're about one thing, one idea about God. If I start looking into this and saying, all right, what does he mean by the people who are hired later or hired earlier? Or what? Leave that. Don't do it. You can analyze the parable a little bit more after you've found the main idea. Once you've found the main idea, you've found it. That's what they're about. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each received a denarius. And when when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Well, that's legality. That's how it should be. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. And he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So, the last shall be first, and the first last. Who are the first here? They're the righteous. They're the righteous. Is it wrong to be righteous? No, not at all. In the Old Testament, was it wrong to to pursue righteousness? Of course not, not at all. The problem with some who were righteously pursuing the law is they forgot that they were sinners. They forgot that they needed the mercy and love of God just like everybody else. And it was a privilege to pursue the law. Like, why why does David get to write half the Psalms? Because he saw that. 
David followed the law as much as he could. And he failed greatly. But David was a man after God's own heart. Mercy, love, compassion. Things that can't be measured by a legal code. This parable is offensive to all who read it. It won't be the last time we talk about it for the sake of time here. I wish we had all day to do this, but we don't. Jesus is not trying to offend anybody. He's not. It's just that love came into the legal world, and the legal world must see it as blasphemous. They must. It's dumbfounded by uncalculated love. Why would God love them? And then God would turn to us and say, why don't you? We're all going to be challenged by this to the core. Uh, Believe me, if you, you stick with me in this study, we're all going to be challenged in a really good way. So how do we apply this? Is Jesus telling us about management and labor? Maybe he's telling us welfare, that the people who don't work should get paid. (laughs) It's not about that at all. Is he telling us the best hour to work? Is he telling us to take it easy? In this parable, the love of God acts contrary to all rational calculation. That's what this parable is about. The meaning of this parable is that God's love is irrational to all calculation. And we, when we see how this love now must be in us, love one another as I have loved you, and this love is in us, we must stop calculating. Now, it doesn't mean that from some I withhold and from some I separate. You work that out with God. But if in your mind you have this calculator going on where so-and-so deserves my time and -and so-and-so doesn't, so-and-so deserves my money and -and so-and-so doesn't, so-and-so warrants my service and -and so-and-so doesn't, so-and-so warrants or deserves my sacrifice and -and so-and-so doesn't. Or then it might not be yes or no. It might just be, you get 10% of my effort, you get 20%. Uh, you're, you're a better Christian, you get 80%. And if we start thinking on that level, we've missed it. We've missed it. We've put ourselves under the law. And we're not under the law anymore. Now, I hope there's 100 questions jumping in your mind. Or 10. Or 1. I'm not going to judge you on that, just to follow what I just said. Um, But I hope there are, because there's no way I can get to everything in one hour. Uh, And, you know, and we're all going to learn this. And the things that we're going to learn is, what is God's agape love How has that love changed from the Old Testament concept to the new? Love your neighbor, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself is in both Testaments. We'll try to learn how God's love becomes our love for God and for our neighbor. Those are the only two options. It isn't for God, for myself. It isn't, hold on. It isn't for my neighbor, for myself, and for my enemy. No, no, get rid of that. 
for God, for my neighbor. The neighbor includes the enemy, and self-love is not a Christian thing. We'll see what it means to love as yourself. Uh, We also have to discern agape from eros. We have to discern the pure stream. It's narrow. Narrow is the way that leads to life. We have to discern the narrow stream from the big flowing river that is Eros, that has invaded Christian love. That's got to go. So we have a lot of work to do. And it's going to be a good time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for uh, a time that we have to learn and grow and to know you um, It shouldn't be a surprise to us, Father, that knowing you at times is a struggle. That we have to fight through some preconceived notions or things that we may know wrongly or things that we just don't know at all. And that's okay, Father. We know that you will guide us. We have the Holy Spirit within us to open up our hearts to the truth of things. May we see them, Father, by your grace. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for your patience. I tried to keep that under an hour. Tried. Um, yeah, we'll take our offering at this time. We uh, thank you for all of you who give and, and all who want to give and can't. Um, that is okay. That uh, We have been blessed as a ministry, and we're very, very grateful for you all. So let's pray for our offering. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to give as your priest. We do give as your priest. In worship of you, we ask, Father, that you bless this offering to your glory. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. Yeah, I, I knew my, my, my level would be up. Let's close in prayer, and then we can fly away. Father, thank you for our gathering. Thank you for uh, the royal family for giving us one to another, pr- providing for us the unity and love that have come exactly from you and only from you. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for all who have... Listen, all who are listening who have not come to believe upon him, I beg you to please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your Savior. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. There is no other person who is a Savior. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, has become a man. He died on the cross for all of your sins, for the sins of the world, and he resurrected on the third day, proving that he had actually finished the work of stepping in our place and satisfying the justice of God that we who cannot pay for our sins, he paid for them. So, if you believe upon him, you will be saved. The gift is offered to you. You have to open up your hand and take it. 
And the way you do that is to, by faith, believe in Christ as your Savior. He is your Savior, all in all, who died and raised again on the third day, now sits in the right hand of God, resurrected, waiting for you to believe upon Him. We thank you, Father, for all things. In Christ's name, amen.